Our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 1. We're going to start at the first verse. It's on page uh, 300 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklah two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? Uh, an Amalekite, I, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David and the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man, brought him the report where are you from I'm the son of a foreigner an Amalekite he answered David asked him why weren't you afraid to lift a hand to destroy the Lord's anointed then David called one of his men and said go strike him down he is so he struck him down and he died David said to him your blood be on your own head your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. The reading now continues in chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. And David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Hanoim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and then there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabith-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messages to them to say to them, 
The Lord bless you for showing the kindness to Saul, your master by, your master by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Here ends our reading. Thank you, Bruce. Well, we come today to a new series. We're looking at 2 Samuel, which is where the readings have come from this morning by Bruce. And we're going to journey through this book over the next eight, nine weeks. And I normally, when I start a message, will give you some introductory thoughts just on the topic uh, that's raised by the passage. Today, I just want to start by giving you a few thoughts on why we're looking at 2 Samuel. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this book um, as you read it. Obviously, there's uh, lots of different names uh, from different eras and places that you often you can trip on. A little tip for those who are in small group uh, or those who might be reading aloud in church, just say it confidently because your guess is as good as mine, okay? <laughs> and if you say it with confidence, everyone thinks, well, they really know what they're talking about. Um, it's a different language, different names, different culture. And I want to just give you a couple of reasons why we do this. Um, each year, I want to make sure we do some Old Testament. It's very important that we actually see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected. Uh, they both work together to help us understand the Lord Jesus. And obviously, the Lord Jesus arrives in the New Testament, but the backdrop for the Lord Jesus is the Old Testament. And for that reason, we want to read to understand the gospel with a greater depth and with a greater sense of clarity. But I'll give you two more reasons. Um, firstly, when you come to 2 Samuel, and it's a difficult book, and so it's worth asking the question, why study this particular Old Testament book? Can't you pick something easier? Um, and I often think that when I'm working on this, why didn't I pick something easier? Uh, I wrote this message twice, two different ones. You can have my other one another time if you'd like. Um, the reason is this. David is really what this book is about. It's about the rise and the fall of King David. And we did 1 Samuel a number of years ago, which really is a book about Saul and the emergence of David, but this book really has David front and centre. And in the Old Testament, there are three key leaders that kind of stand over and above all the other leaders, uh, that is Abraham, Moses and David. Now, of those three, you'd have to say David is the greatest of them and probably the most significant. And he's an outstanding leader, though he does have some fatal flaws, which we will see. And what's important to note is David, from his line, comes the Lord Jesus. He prefigures the coming of Christ. He's the first Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. David is the first in the sense of God's anointed chosen one. Saul was a uh, king, but David actually is God's king. And so we learn a lot about the Lord Jesus through his great-great-great-great-grandfather, uh, King David. But secondly... Um, even though it's harder work, 2 Samuel has got some incredible stories in it. There is great narrative material to go through here. Uh, we find the city of Jerusalem, which becomes the city of God and is featured in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, symbolic of what we are looking forward to. 
here in 2 Samuel. It's where we first are introduced to this great place. Secondly, one of the great promises in all of the Old Testament is in 2 Samuel. Uh, When I was at Bible college, um, we used to joke that if you didn't know anything, you'd quote Abraham and the promise to him in Genesis 12, and you'd quote 2 Samuel 7 and the promise to David, and surely you could get some marks for that. Uh, And we're going to come to this great promise, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7 later on. Um, Second, thirdly, It's probably one of the most famous stories in all scripture is in here. Uh, It's not David's finest moment. It's the story of David and... Exactly, you all know it. Um, It's a tragic, tragic account of how one of the great ones falls. We're going to come to that in a couple of weeks. And so what you'll see here is really the greatness of human leadership along with the fatal flaws that are in human leaders. Lastly, there's some very confronting material, and we're going to look at one particular chapter. We discussed whether we would actually look at it. I said, no, we must. It's the rape of Tamar. Infamous. Uh, And on that day, which is on June 17, we're going to be launching our new domestic violence or domestic abuse policy for St. Matthew's Church. I spoke uh, with Cara Hartley last year on this topic of great importance in our society, also for us as a church. The diocese has put material out last synod and we've been working on that and we'll be presenting the domestic abuse policy for our church on that weekend. So there's lots of good reasons to study this book. So let me stop and pray as we open up these first few chapters. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you as we read to Samuel, wanting to know more about you and your son, the Lord Jesus, through these great stories. Open our hearts and minds to hear you speak to us this day through this ancient book and give us wisdom to live by, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we're going to do today um, is we're going to look at the first five chapters. Now, are you doing much today? (laughs) Strap yourselves in. We're here for a while. No, no, I'm joking. Um, I'm going to give you just a very high-level overview of these first five chapters and what you could really describe in one sentence these opening chapters are about waiting for the kingdom to come or waiting for God to act. And that's my message to us today. We actually, in this world, need to learn what it means to wait on God. But I'm going to give you a high-level overview of these first five chapters that we're going to look at in some way today. Firstly, chapter one, Saul dies. Saul was the people's choice for king, fatally flawed, looked very impressive humanly, but had a fatal flaw in terms of his failure to obey God. God installed or chose David to be his one because he had a heart after God. That's chapter one, Saul dies. Chapter two um, is one of the most um, significant in the sense it's the beginning of David's ascent to the throne and we saw in the second reading that Bruce read, he becomes king in Hebron. Now that is just the one of the 12 tribes that's in the south and he's anointed king there. But what follows is a civil war breaks out between the south in Hebron, and the northern 11 tribes. Chapter 2, so has civil war. It's ugly. Chapter 3, Abner, who is the general for the army of the north, basically decides that the wise thing to do, the godly thing to do, is for the northern tribes to come and unite with the southern ones underneath King David because he's God's chosen one. He comes and approaches David, but what does David's men do? They don't trust him. They think he's, trying to, uh, he's up to bad things, and they kill him. <laughs> more civil war takes place. 
Abner's murdered. Chapter 4, Ishbosheth, there you go, it's just sad confident, okay? <laughs> Ishbosheth, uh, he was appointed as king of the northern 11 tribes when David's king of the south. He gets murdered. It's a bloody book, this uh, 2 Samuel. Uh, and let me say, the narrator does not comment on the violence that you're going to confront, and it will confront you in different ways. It's really a reflection of that culture and time. Um, it, it remains neutral in the sense that, not that it has neutral things to think about it, but there's bigger things it wants to address. And Mishbosheth is murdered. Chapter 5, David becomes king over Israel. And so what happens is, and this is the introduction in terms of the narrative to uh, this book, you move from, at the end of chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, Saul is king, he dies, and by the time you get to the, uh, where we're getting to at chapter 5, David is now king. And that's kind of the big picture. And in these five chapters, he has to wait for the kingdom to come. What I want to do is look at three different things in terms of what it means to wait for God's kingdom and to wait on God. We need patience, we need integrity, and we need hope. Firstly, patience. Have a look at chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, it'll be helpful to have them open. We're going to look at a few different parts. Um, page 300 is the beginning of 2 Samuel. Chapter 5 is on 304. And I'm reading from verse 4 of chapter 5. Page 304, 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. It's a very extensive time he's king. Now in Hebron he reigned over, reigned over Judah seven years and six months and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. It's fair to say David becoming king was a long time coming. Let me just take you through the chronology. Um, David is a young boy, the youngest of numerous children, to Jesse. And Samuel the prophet is told, Saul is no longer going to be the king long term. He's a failure. I'm going to appoint someone who has a heart after me. And in 1 Samuel 16, David is chosen. He's a young shepherd boy. And I estimate his age is somewhere around 15, 16, 17. Let's say 16. Very young. And he's anointed by Samuel and told, you're going to be the future king of Israel. 1 Samuel 17 is the next chapter, and you have the famous story of David and Goliath, where David, as the young one who's been anointed privately and secretly, goes out and displays that God's favour and power are with him. And he conquers the Philistine when all others had failed. You move on in the story, 1 Samuel 19, Saul becomes incredibly jealous because you see, David now, uh, the story picks up, is leading the men in battle and he is going out and slaying thousands upon 10,000. And basically, he wins the hearts of the men and women of Israel. And they love him. And Saul becomes incredibly jealous and insecure. And by chapter 20, what we read is, Saul says to his son Jonathan, who's a great friend of David's, that David must die. Because he's so threatened that his throne's going to be taken. And so he sends his men out to find him. And so from chapter 21 onwards, uh, there's basically this dance with the current king Saul pursuing the future king David, trying to kill him. And David even has to leave the country at one point for his own safety before returning at the very end. And when 2 Samuel begins, Saul 
and his son Jonathan has just died. And I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. Uh, You've been told by the prophet that you are the future anointed king of Israel. You've experienced the power of God through you to demonstrate that this is going to be true as you've led God's people out in battle. And then you've had to wait and wait and wait. And finally the one who you're succeeding dies. What would you do? Would there be, and, and he's tried to kill you. <laughs> you think there'd be a sense of relief? Finally that writer is dead. No, what you see in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is this incredible stature of him as a leader. He weeps for Saul. And there's this incredible grace that he offers towards Saul and his family. He doesn't delight in his undoing, his death, his destruction, but rather he weeps. And you see there, um, quite powerfully, chapter 1, verse 17, David took up his lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. In other words, it's not just that he was sad and lamented, he got the people to weep over the loss of their king Saul. Now, in chapter 2, we see that he becomes king of Judah. And he's aged 30 at this time. It's in Hebron. What's important to note, as I said, it was just the tribe of Judah. It's not the 11 other tribes. And civil war breaks out because Ishbosheth basically says, I want the power. And he fights the men of David for the power. And this rages for a couple of years before he dies. And then finally... At 37, he's installed as king. So 16, he's promised he's going to be the king. 30, he gets a small part of the kingdom. 37, he is now king. 21 years, David has to wait before the initial promise is finally fulfilled. And I want to say to us, um, firstly, God's kingdom and his purposes rarely come quickly. Whenever you read through scripture, and it's my experience in life, the things of God typically take time. And the kingdom just typically does not just progress in an instant. The way we experience change and the kingdom coming in our own life typically takes time. And one of the most difficult things, I think, regarding this and the call for patience, I experience personally when I sit with people who are praying. And they want you to pray with me, with them. And it's something like this, Bruce, I've been praying for this for so many years. Can you pray for me? And what they're really saying is God hasn't answered my prayers. You could phrase it this way, why is God making me wait for his kingdom to come? I believe he's there, but I don't see any evidence that he's doing anything. Why? And I think it's a question David must have asked himself many times over 21 years. God, you, you promised me. You had Samuel anoint me. And then I went out and led the victory. And ever since then, I've just been waiting. Well, it's fascinating the way he does wait. If you look up the Psalms, one of the helpful things is in the Psalms, Some of them have descriptions about when the psalm is written. Now, one of the most famous ones is Psalm 51. It's 
written by King David after his dalliance with Bathsheba. And it's his confession of sin, having been confronted by the prophet Nathan. But Psalm 59 is a fascinating one. It's when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And David writes this psalm, basically when he's on the run. And the thing that struck me is this. There's just this patience and this belief God will deliver him. Not a grumbling, God, why are you doing this? I'm going to read to you from Psalm 59 verse 9. You are my strength. I watch you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. And you see here in the life of David this incredibly godly response to the travails and difficulties that he went through as he seeks God in prayer and just cries out to him, not with unbelief, but just with a sense of affirmation, actually, God, you're my strength, I watch you. Now, at other times, he was weak. Uh, There's a famous incident in 1 Samuel where he has to go and hide in a cave, and Psalm 142 records it as he again is on the run from Saul and living in a cave, and he prayed there in 142 these words, I cry to you, Lord, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. In other words, both when he was feeling strong and weak, he just continued to wait patiently and he poured out his heart to God. He waited for God to act rather than to act in his own strength. And I'm sure as I speak here today and as we think about waiting for God, uh, there are people here who are still waiting for God to act. And waiting is part of life. I mean, you wait on the phone, ring Telstra, good luck. (laughs) Daryl said, we're we're with Telstra here in the office and one of the great distresses for Daryl, our business manager, is having to ring Telstra when we have difficulties with our service. And there's all sorts of things you wait for. You wait to see the doctor, you wait in line for all sorts of things. But there's far more significant things that we wait for that really do cause us trouble, far more trouble than Telstra causes us. People who've endured sickness and disease for years and they have prayed, please, can you heal me? It's never easy praying with people in that circumstance people at the end of their life with diseases and illnesses that unless there's an incredible miracle of God they will die from. People who have been praying for years for children who've wandered from the faith and are still far away. God when are you going to act? Can you please bring them back? People who are in difficult relationships or marriages but are seeking to honour God and their promises but there appears no end to the conflict or the dullness and deadness of the relationship. Please God, will you act? Or people who are single but would desperately love to get married and are waiting faithfully for a Christian to come. Please God, will you act? And in all those circumstances that you pray with people, they just keep praying and they keep waiting. And it's part of life in the kingdom that we just have to have patience with God. And we learn this from King David. There's an incredible patience about the way he waits. 
And secondly, we need to have an integrity as we wait. And I think when you're waiting for God and the prayers aren't being answered, there's a great temptation to want to take the circumstances of your life into your own hands and try and answer the prayer yourself. I mean, a very easy one and a very dangerous one is people who want to get married to go and marry someone who's not a Christian. And you read in the New Testament, you read in the Old Testament, that is not what God wants for us. And yet, they will go and do that because they're sick of waiting. And I would just encourage you, if that is your circumstance, keep waiting. And what you see here with David is the way his integrity as a leader shines out to enable him to continue to be patient. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. And what's taking place is this. Saul has died. He's led the people in mourning. And of course, the obvious question is, well, okay, David, are you now going to take the kingdom? God has promised you you're going to have the kingdom next. Are you going to go and take it? And note what David does. He doesn't go and take the kingdom. He goes and seeks God and asks, well, what do you want me to do now? And he waits on God in prayer. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, go up. Where shall I go? Hebron. And David, you can see him, is wanting to be guided by his king, the Lord God. And he knows that if the kingdom is to come, it must be given to him. It's not something he can take. It's fascinating. When you get to chapter 5, he is king in the south, but not the north. Only one tribe, not 12. We read this, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood in the past while Saul was king over us. You were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you'll become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. Now, just look at chapter 4 and chapter 5 and the thing to note is this, and it really is profound in terms of his patience and integrity to wait on God, Ishbosheth, who was the king of the north, dies after two years of civil war. But we know David doesn't become king over them till the seventh year. So there's no king in the north. Wouldn't you think the temptation would be to go and take power if you're David? But he waits. And he waits. And he waits for about four and a half years for God to work in their hearts and the elders to come down and say, now we're ready. It's really quite stunning. And I say that because in our culture and in today, and particularly I was thinking about the corporate environment, so often people will climb over everyone's back to get to the top and take power. And that's how our culture works so often. Well, if you want it, you go and take it, brother. You go and take it, sister. Be the man, be the woman, and take that power. Well, David could have done that. But he didn't. He just continued to patiently wait on God for God to work. And if you Read back in the Puritans, who are very godly people, one of the things they talked about is the discipline of waiting on the Lord. 
having a patience in prayer and seeing how God would act. Rather than being presumptuous and just taking things for yourself. And you see, to wait on God requires integrity where we continue to do what God's word says. Irrespective of the outcome. Where we don't hunger and thirst for power. But rather we seek God to be at work in our life. And to guide our lives. And it may be that you're given power by God. And placed in circumstances of great significance. Great. Do that with integrity. Lead as God would want you to, to bring blessing and honour to him. Blessing to those around, honour to him. Learn from David. Incredibly patient, incredible integrity. But lastly, waiting for God requires hope. You see, the question I had as I was thinking about David... How could you wait for 21 years in such a godly way and you really don't see him complaining at all, you just see him believing? And I think it's simply because of this, because he trusted God's word that God had said he would do what he had promised. From the very earliest of years at 16, he knew the promise of God was with him that I will make you a king. And it's interesting in the narrative in 2 Samuel, chapters 1 to 5, three times that promise comes up. Uh, I'll just show you two of them. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. And it's interesting. It's Abner, the general for the foreign army, who's really opposed to David. He comes to his senses because he remembers the promise of God that was with David. And obviously he must have known that David had spoken of this happening. And he says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, this is Abner. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised on oath. May he be ever so severe with me if I don't do for David what God's promised. And transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And then he says that again to the elders in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, just a few verses on. And we know that the elders must have sat with this for quite a period because it's about four or five years afterwards that you get to chapter 5 and when they finally make David king over all of Israel, it's interesting what they said. While Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. In other words, we saw that God was with you. And secondly, the Lord said to you, you will be shepherd of my people and you will become their ruler. In other words, they believe the promise at this point. And you see, that's what David sat with. God has promised that he will do this and he will bring the kingdom to me. Now, how do we apply that to us? Can we just name it and claim it? <laughs> it's a phrase you can sometimes hear. David named it, claimed it. Can I just name it and claim it? Well, here's where you need to go. Actually, David prefigures the Lord Jesus. And at that level, he is different to us. And what you see in the Lord Jesus is something very similar. He doesn't take power into his hands in the way all around him tried to. And they literally tried to coerce him into being a king who, with physical and military power, took the kingdom. No, 
his hands never picked up a sword. His hands were open. They got nailed to a cross. And he submitted himself to the Father's will by giving up power and dying on a cross. And you see, he believed what his father had said, you will be raised on the third day. And it's at that point that the kingdom came when he was risen from the dead and sin was defeated and death overcome. And friends, we live in the shadow of that event. And we live underneath the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest son of David. And we pray for that kingdom to come now. It's the prayer of the followers of the Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does he teach us? May your kingdom come. And so we're to be praying for God's kingdom to come, but with a patience, with an integrity, and with a hope based on the promises of God. And it's interesting when you get to the New Testament, as you think about the way the promise of God operates for us today. So for David, it operated in terms of he had a promise that he would become an earthly king. The promise for us today in the kingdom coming is this. Have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. I'll read it for you. We wait. What do we wait for? We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Uh, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, God's grace trains us what to do? To wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Christ Jesus. Uh, Philippians, he says to the church there, our citizenship is not in heaven, uh, it's in heaven. And from there we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In other words, the struggles that we have in this life will finally come to an end when the kingdom comes. And we wait for that, it's when the Lord Jesus returns and he'll transform us. And Paul says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Romans 8, in the great discussion of suffering in this world, Paul says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Let me put this together. David was promised the kingdom and would have prayed, your kingdom come. And in that day and age, it meant he needed to have patience, integrity and hope based on the word of God. As people who follow in the footsteps of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, we too are waiting for the kingdom to come. And that kingdom will come when he returns. And it's right that we pray for us to experience the reality of the kingdom in this present world. To pray for marriages to be restored. To pray for disease to be healed. To pray for a partner. To pray for wayward children. But the kingdom will not finally come until he returns. And it's only then that we have great assurance that all of our pain and our suffering and our disease and our sickness and our issues will be taken away. And until that day, we need to walk with patience, waiting on God. We need to walk with an integrity before God. 
and a hope that is certain based on the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise that he will return. And it's why in the New Testament you see them crying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And so as we wait, let us be people who, like David, poured out their hearts to God in prayer. As we wait for his kingdom to come, we experience it in part in this world, but fully when he finally returns. Let us pray. Father, help us to be people who have a patience in our life. Through all the difficulties that we face, the broken relationships and marriages, the sickness and suffering, wayward children, And Lord, may we patiently wait for you to work. May we have integrity in our lives as we seek to wait for your kingdom to come. May we not thirst and grab for power, but wait to be used by you. And Lord, may our hope be based fully on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that certain and sure event based on Jesus' first coming and his resurrection and defeat of death. Fill our hearts with that hope, we pray, and strengthen us to wait on you through all of life. In Jesus' name, amen.